Welcome to Mosaic, a podcast about theology and theologizing in Singapore, Asia, and beyond. Brought to you by Singapore Bible College. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast from Singapore Bible College. I am Jackie Huang, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. I'm joined today by another co-host, Benita Lim. Hi, everyone. Uh, in previous episodes, we have talked about our desire to theologize from the context of Singapore, Asia, and beyond. And I have also um, mentioned that being a missionary, I'm not only interested in how Christians in Asia make sense of our faith, but I am also interested in how we communicate and lift our faith in our interactions with the greater society. And so in this regard, um, theology and missiology, that is the study of mission, both require careful examination in the context that we lived in. I am very excited to have Dr. Samuel Law and Dr. Kim Kyo Kwok joining us today in this episode to talk about their book um, on missiology from the context of Southeast Asia. And to just introduce to you um, the two authors of this book project, Dr. Samuel Law is the Senior Dean of academic affairs and associate professor of intercultural studies here at Singapore Bible College. He completed his PhD in biomechanical engineering from Tulane University in the US and PhD in intercultural studies from Asbury Theological Seminary in the US. He was a staff fellow at the National Institute of Health in the US before turning to pastoral ministry. And together with his wife, Esther, he was a pastor for more than 20 years before joining the faculty here at SBC. And I had the privilege of learning from him when I was a student here in the Intercultural Studies program. He is also the author of Revitalizing Missions on the Cusp of Change, Complex System Science Maze Ways for Mission Theory Amid 21st Century Realities, and more than 20 abstracts, articles, and chapters in the area of missiology and biomedical engineering. Dr. Kim Kyo-Kwa is the Registrar, the Director of Engagement Program and Lecturer in Missiology and Interdisciplinary Studies at Biblical Graduate School of Theology. She holds a Bachelor of Law from National University of Singapore and completed her PhD in Intercultural Studies from Asbury Theological Seminary in the U.S., she has many years of work experience in the marketplace, church and parachurch organizations. She has published on a variety of topics, including a contextual commentary on Matthew, contributed to the Dictionary of Christian Spirituality on the and on the topic of religious harmony in a book titled Faith in an Age of Terror. Hi, Sam and Kim. Kim thanks for joining us. Hello. Hello. Um, you both have an impressive set of credentials. I got really tired just reading your credentials. <laughs> so um, maybe you can help us and our listeners get to know you a little bit better. Uh, maybe tell us something more about yourself, like maybe tell us how you became Christians or something like that. Well, thank you uh, for uh, having um having us to be able to share from our book. I, I know that it's a fairly uh, large and very generous introduction, but um, I think in many ways uh, it is just uh, what I would say part of the story of uh, diaspora uh, of Chinese. I think a lot of what I went through uh, with the various degrees and, and, and pastoral ministry um, really has been a journey of many uh, diaspora Chinese um, 
uh, throughout the world is that we really are immigrants and we are uh, influenced in uh, a variety of different uh, from the from the various places that we go to. So I think whenever you ask me, um, people ask me, how do I introduce myself? I'm always stuck because I can't give a single answer is like I'm from Seattle. So I'll just uh, try to briefly share uh, the journey uh, that has brought me here. Um, I am a, a fourth generation believer. Uh, my great great grandfather became a believer in uh, Shaman, uh, China. Um, I'm a third generation pastor. So my grandfather pastored a church uh, in Gulongyi uh, in Shaman. And my dad was a pastor. They came out after the Civil War uh, and he studied at Bethel Bible Seminary in Hong Kong and later on stayed there uh, after the Civil War. And uh, he and my mother uh, went to uh, Michigan to study at Western Seminary. I was born the last year during their MDiv. So this is why I am American-born Chinese. But I only stayed there for six months. And then afterwards, the uh, family moved back to Hong Kong. And then they stayed there uh, for another two years. And then my dad was called to pastor in Ipoh, Malaysia. And uh, we stayed there until uh, Malaysia expelled the missionaries. So my dad went back to the U.S. And I've been in the U.S. Uh, since then. So what I would say is that I'm a product of the diaspora movement. I'm very thankful, I think, for the opportunity to be able to I see how God has been working uh, in all the various cities um, that I've had a chance to be able to go to. Um, 75% of my life has been in the U.S., 25% has been overseas. Um, I came to faith uh, at the age of 12, and uh, I was called to full-time ministry um, my first year in college. Unlike Sam, I'm a first-generation convert. Like Sam, I'm also part of the Chinese diaspora. My I was born in Indonesia and we came here in the 1960s because of the race riots. My dad thought that there wasn't going to be much of a future for, for Chinese families there. So we've been here uh, in Singapore ever since. My parents sent my siblings and I to mission schools here in Singapore because um, those schools were considered better than government schools. So it was because I was in a mission school and because I was in Girl Guides, I came to know Jesus and I was attracted to Jesus. I honestly think that it was partly because I thought it was cool to be a Christian because the cool girls in school were Christian. And so that's it. Hey, thank you um, for, for that introduction. I mean, even though you come from different places, um, a, a lot of your stories have this um, migration theme in, in, in your journey. Um, you both mentioned the word diaspora, and, and that is really interesting. And we even mission in itself is kind of a movement of people, a movement of ideas um, from one place to another. So maybe um, just a follow-up question. How does um, being a person who's lived in multiple places or your family lived in multiple places. Um, how does that shape the way you look at missiology? Or maybe how did you get into the field of missiology in the first place? <laughs> yeah, well, um, for, for me, it is true that I've actually moved around quite a bit. Um, I, as I reflected on my life and uh, um, I'm turning 60 next year, I realized that I have been in something like 15 different cities over the course of my life. And I think in, in many ways, this journey um, of diaspora has really helped me to frame, I think, how I see uh, missiology. Sometimes when we look at different problems and we want to fix it, 
right? But when you have this yeah. larger context, I began to realize that you have to understand the context and then you have to understand the problem within the context. And this is mm. what actually led me to understand, I think, the importance of complex systems. So when we understand the whole uh, system, it helps us to avoid being too simplistic. And uh, the issue with uh, being too simplistic is oftentimes um, the answers that we come up with or the solutions that we come up with, it may solve a short-term situation, but it may create a host of other problems. And I think that this is what we're seeing throughout the world um, as uh, missions has been carried forth. There was, has been a very heavy emphasis on evangelism, but then um, when it comes to discipleship, uh, how to form churches and all the other things, I think many of the early missionaries didn't consider these factors. So what I would say is that I, I think the journey that, that I've gone through has helped me to realize that there are a host of factors that we need to take into account. And unless we study them well, we are only going to um, create more problems um, later on as churches develop uh, in our planet. Sounds like your biomedical engineering background is, also helps you to be always thinking about systems and how they work. Yes, in some ways, in some ways. And again, I said it's like that, that's something that uh, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not something that I, I think uh, I want to study biomedical engineering so that I could be uh, a missionary. I think it, it was really, I think, uh, God's way of helping me to see things in a different way. Uh, again, in contrast with Sam, I, if not counting the my infancy spent in Jakarta, basically spent my life in two cities, Singapore and Wilmore in, the, in Kentucky in the US. But apart from that, I think, how did I get into missions? And what, what, how do I see missions is really about how Christians and the church engages in society. How do I define missions? Anything that we do outside the church and how we engage it. And that was what I, I have been doing. So uh, rather than that kind of complexity and breadth, I realized what engagement was. I think when I was in the US and reflecting back into what life was like in Singapore. And, and then just thinking long, deep and hard and, and reading a lot of stuff about that. And, and what I'm trying to say is I think the distance helped that being away from, from Singapore just helped me to get a, a very different perspective on how church engages and how Christians engage in society and in the world. But on a different note, what does bind us, uh, Sam and I together, is that we were both from Asbury Seminary where we both did our PhDs. Surprisingly, we both had the same mentor and that was Michael Rinkowicz. I was surprised because I thought I was one of the last uh, students that, that he took because after, after me, about a couple of years later, he retired. And then when Sam comes to Singapore and we were chatting one day and he says, oh, my mentor was Mike Rinkowicz. I said, I thought he retired. And Sam says, yeah, he retired to his farm and then he would come back every now and then to mentor people like Sam. He was a good guy. Great. That's great. That's really interesting to have that connection between the two of you. So, so Kim, did you tire your supervisor out so much that he had to go to the farm to recuperate? No, Just kidding. He, was, he was on the verge. He always had that farm in Indiana, was it? And um, yes. yeah, he was, he always had one foot there. Yeah. It's actually, it's been a joy to be able to work with Kim because Kim shares is that we do come from different perspectives. I think for me, uh, I see the breadth, but I may be a little shallow sometimes. But Kim, whenever I talk to her, I realize, oh, there are so many questions that I haven't asked or thought about um, because she really reflects well. In many ways, 
that's how we work well together is we see from two different perspectives. And I, I think it, it just adds to a fuller picture of, of, um, uh, of the work that we do together. Yeah, that, that's really great. I think this is a good transition then to, for us to jump into your book project. Um, I know Benita has some questions that she wants to ask, so I'll turn this time over to Benita. I should warn you, Benita mentioned that she was going to grill our guests in, in another <laughs> uh, podcast previous to this one. <laughs> did I say that? Oh, dear. I don't even remember I did, but <laughs> let's get the good stuff out, right? Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I think both of you were mentioning that, uh, you know, you work together. So is there anything particular that you are working on together which you would like to tell us about? Well, we've been working together. Um, I think we're going to introduce uh, this book on Southeast Asian uh, missiology. And this is something that we've been working on um, since before the pandemic. Um, We were supposed to actually finish last year, but because of the pandemic, it took us uh, one additional year to to finish. In some ways, uh, it it has been good because it gave us, I think, more time to, to reflect and to try to work out the different issues. This project uh, came about through Dr. Andrew Spurgeon as he was trying to develop a new uh, missiology series for Asia uh, on behalf of ATA. And um, I I think that uh, as we worked on this together, our characteristics helped the book to become what it is today. I provided basically the framework um, for the book but then um, Kim really worked on, on fleshing out all the different details. And then because uh, she, she her, of her law degree, she is very, very detailed to, to ensure what was presented uh, really uh, had substance to it. I think that um, through the last um, couple of years, as we were working on it, uh, uh, we were actually quite pleased um, at how uh, the book has, has came up with. Uh, let me just go ahead and briefly share uh, from my perspective. I think my primary focus was on the structure of the book. And uh, I had two aims uh, that I really thought the book should really emphasize. Uh, I think first uh, is this rich context of Southeast Asia and uh, what God has been doing uh, in the last several hundred years. And I'm very thankful uh, that I learned so much uh, by being able to serve uh, in Singapore uh, the last five years. And I said, it's like, this is something that the rest of the world should really understand. Because in so many different ways, Southeast Asia is a microcosm of globalization. Um, The uh, 10 or 11 countries of ASEAN, depending on how you define uh, ASEAN, um, it's multicultural, it's multilateral. And if you know what is happening in the world today, where China and the United States are vying for uh, the status of being the superpower, um, ASEAN is uh, all the different countries function in a different way. Um, the relationships are much more equal and, and how they work in terms of relationships is very, very different from how uh, I would say Western powers or the superpowers function. So I think that that's uh, one of the things that Southeast Asia um, really provides for the rest of the world. The second thing is that Southeast Asia as a case study, it really helps churches, missiologists and missionaries think realistically in terms of the 21st century context. When we see, I think the richness, uh, almost every religion is uh, just basically neighbors with one another. You have Hindus and Buddhists, uh, you have Christians, they're all working together. And it's a question of how to be able to work things out. So those two aspects of Southeast Asia really can uh, help the world to 
go forward in the 21st century as globalization really creates more and more relationships. The second aspect uh, of the book that I really uh, was hoping uh, we could contribute was to be able to uh, use what I say complex systems. And, and the reason why complex systems is important is because of the fact prior to the 1980s, uh, much of the way that social science worked was uh, very linear. In other words, a, a simple method. If you have a problem, you fix it and you go on. With the advent of computers and so forth, we now see things uh, systemically. So um, if you look at data analysis, it's no longer A uh, and B, and you end up with C. It's now multivariate uh, in terms of how we do analysis. And I think for mission agencies and for churches, we need to realize that things are complex. You cannot just say, why is our church declining? Oh, we have to fire the pastor or uh, we have to have this program. Those are all what I would call simplest, simplistic um, approaches to try to solve a problem. And I think that because the 21st century is so complex, uh, even in a church in Singapore uh, that's influenced by American churches, uh, social media, uh, five generations now living, because we have uh, our lifespan is longer, it's much more complex. And we have to be able to understand how all these factors work together. Um, and I think that Southeast Asia um, provides us with a wonderful, I would say, laboratory where we can work out and, and develop a missiology that uh, really examines and looks at all the different factors. That's good. Thanks, now, Sam. I'll turn it over so, to Kim, who will yeah. uh, share uh, her contribution in all the different nuances. The book is in two parts. The first is a history of Christian mission and the church in that particular country. Uh, where possible, we would get a local person to write it or if a missionary, one who has been in that country for a long time. So this history is important because it sets a context. Whether, for instance, whether missionaries were seen positively as in Singapore or somewhat negatively as in Indonesia, therefore impacts how Christianity is viewed today. So the first section is, is all that. Then the second part deals with issues which affect us all in Southeast Asia as a region. So, for example, uh, we touch on issues like globalization and sister veneration. That is a, that's a big issue for many of us from Chinese or Asian background. And as well as the church. What You know, the, the church is not just a church in Singapore, but, you know, because of mission trips and everybody goes uh, all, all over the place. The church today has crossed geographic and political borders. So how do Christians relate with one another? How has churches related with one another? And how has this church, the church as a whole in Southeast Asia matured in the last 200 years or so? So that's kind of what we've been trying to show mm. and describe in the book. Yeah. Thanks, Sam and Kim. So what I hear is that, you know, what this book is really trying to do is to um, look at the Southeast Asian context because we recognize the diversity that's been happening here, right? We recognize how complex Christianity moves around in a very complex place. Uh, and, you know, as this world globalizes, right, we recognize also, you know, the, the, the complexities among the systems. And so what's happening in Southeast Asia has a lot to tell, right, the rest of the world on, on what, what is happening here and, and to let the dialogue continue taking place. Um, and, you know, Kim, I think you mentioned maybe like, uh, you know, you try to get a local person to write this, right? So some other people 
from different parts of Southeast Asia. Could you tell me, like maybe some of their names? Uh, you know, who are who are they, and why why and how did you get to get them to do this? How did we get them? A lot of it was just casting the net out, um, asking for connections. And, and some of these people, I'm going to mention, I've, I've never even met them face to face. A lot of this has been on email. So we were glad to get some uh, somebody to write, Nari Santos from the Philippines to write on the, the history and background of, of the church in the Philippines and missions there. I think it was Sam, was it, who found Peter Nguyen uh, from Vietnam? who you knew him. So, so that was something to get a, a, somebody from there. So that was a local voice. Again, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, we're a bit more familiar. So we, we, we managed to get some people. But I, I mentioned missionaries. So we did find an OMF missionary from Thailand. His name is called Dalfred um, to write on the church in Thailand. Yeah, so, so that's, that's kind of the variety of, of it. Uh, and then some, some locals as well. Great. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a very exciting lineup. And I'm also looking forward to, you know, reading from them. And so as, you know, you compile all these articles, right, as you read through them, what are some themes that continue to surface? Uh, you know, any challenges that continue to appear uh, in their writings, especially regarding contextualization in Asia? Well, um, I think as we were reading through the, the various articles, we realized one of the things that, that popped up, and I think that I think we probably inherently knew, but when it became much more visible, because this is one of the things of, of when you're editing and you have uh, various um, writers, it's like you're, you're trying to come up with, you're trying to piece together and to see where all the common streams are. One of the things that I found really interesting was um, colonization. Uh, and uh, colonialism within Southeast Asia. This was almost uh, the one theme that came out in every single chapter. And I think that when we think about why there are Methodist churches in, in, in Singapore and in Malaysia, and why there are CMA churches in Vietnam and uh, Cambodia and so forth, it really was a result of colonialism, but as well, um, uh, there were what were known as comity agreements. And, and these were uh, among the various denominations, uh, the mission agencies that uh, basically separated uh, different fields where they would be serving in order for them to be very effective. And as we looked at each of the various countries um, in, the, in both the first section with the histories, as well as uh, individual themes, um, this, for me, was quite surprising, is the fact that the colonial history, along with which denomination impacted which particular region, really it resulted in the flavor of the church that came up in each, each particular country. So for me, I think that was probably the, the one thing that, that stood out among all the various chapters. One thing. Sam mentioned that it, it took us much longer because of the pandemic. So when we kept on going back to the articles to read, we were both also quite surprised that the pandemic did not change what had been written. You know, so sometimes you write something and it gets out of date because of a major worldwide thing like a pandemic. But surprisingly, what was written, even for the issues and, and the, how the church has been, it is not out of date. Well, we, we don't think it's out of date because of the of COVID. So that was something that we both noticed. I think the other thing that also struck me is what I would call the role of little people. You don't go, you're not going to get big names mentioned in these chapters. You know, there isn't the 
um, you know, Hudson Taylor in China or William Carey in India. In fact, half of the people aren't even named. And, and that is such an encouragement that God works with unknowns. He knows them, but they don't have to be big names. But you look at the church in Southeast Asia, and there are little churches all over this region because of just unnamed, unknown, small little missionaries who went out there to do the work. And that's encouraging. Maybe I'll add one more additional thing is that there was so much diversity among all the different uh, nations. When we looked at them, you, you see how God, you know, we always uh, quote Roland Allen and Paul's missionary methods and so forth. But when you look across all the different countries, you actually see variety and, and how God used different ways to share the gospel. And sometimes it was persecution. For example, uh, when you look at a chapter on Cambodia, right? And we think about the, the killing fields uh, in 1975 with the Khmer Rouge. In some ways, it was also, uh, I don't want to say positive, but it was a, a catalyst uh, to help reframe the church. So it was for us, we just marveled at how God used so many different ways in, across the different countries. And I think that helps maybe the larger global church to say, well, we shouldn't just follow one particular method. We really should allow God to work and to let God, uh, in accordance to his time, grow his church. That's really fascinating what both of you have shared about even just um, the content of your book. I mean, it's really exciting for me to just to hear you guys describe this book. It's like, I, I really need to get this book. Uh, and then when is it coming out? Yes. Next year, hopefully next year. It's next year. Next year. It's been next year for the past three years. It's next year. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's just say it's going to be 2022 then. <laughs> Well, we'll pray for you guys and hope that it will come out uh, soon enough. But I'm curious, and, and something, um, Kim, what you said about that this is kind of the story of the little people, not the big names. And, and I think I appreciate that. As an OMF missionary, you know, we are an organization that's um, have been capitalizing on the big name of Hudson Taylor for more than 150 years now. And, and But the thing is, really, there are a lot of um, missionaries who are no-name missionaries, who are the little people. And, and along with them, a lot of local evangelists who are also, if you will, no-name people. But in, in God's kingdom, they, they do have, um, they're in God's books, so maybe not in our books yet. And, and I, so I appreciate what you guys are talking about in, in your book. Um, and how much of that do you think it, it's something that's necessary for our church today? Because I, I think we have a lot of a, in Asia, I think, too, and in, in the West, sometimes we celebrate a celebrity culture in a way that I, I don't know if that's healthy or not. Could, could you speak a little bit about that and how your book project may may address um, kind of a missiology that, that is associated with big names? I'll speak from a complex systems perspective. <laughs> uh, because, sure. Um, this was one of the things that in my dissertation, um, I was looking at how uh, when we look from complex systems, we actually come up with a different answer. So when we think about revitalization of churches, um, AFC Wallace basically says it has to be um, a visionary leader. And uh only when you have a cultural angst, then you have a visionary leader that uh, creates a new mazeway. 
Um, and then that is how culture changes and, and societies are revitalized. And when we think about uh, revitalization uh, studies for churches, this has been the model since 1956 when it first came out. So that's a very simple linear system. And many churches, when they encounter problems, the first thing is it's the pastor's fault and <laughs> we need to replace the pastor because that is how you, quote, revitalize the church. When you come back from a, from a complex systems perspective, you realize it's actually not the pastor. It's how you disciple the people, right? So when you're looking from the systems, it's actually the individual, what we call agents or units that really uh, determine the direction of the church. Now, a leader is important, but it isn't uh, the prime mover. And when we think about a diverse system, for, when we think about Southeast Asia, or we think about a multicultural church, a visionary leader cannot represent every single group in that church. It has to be the individual people. So when we think about Southeast Asia, when you think about all the various countries and all the different churches and how uh, quote, national churches continue to grow, it wasn't because of the visionary leader. I think, I think in many ways, uh, at least from a complex systems perspective, is when you have diversity, there's no one single visionary leader that can accommodate all the diversity. It's actually the individual groups working in unity together that enables the church to grow. In other words, it's First Corinthians uh, that is playing out uh, in Southeast Asia. Great answer, Sam. I've got nothing to add. <laughs> Well, maybe I can ask you then, Kim, a question. I think it is relevant. I mean, your chapter, you're writing a book chapter in this book project on um, the interstitial places um, where we need to go take social justice into the interstitial places. And, and maybe, did I even say that term right? <laughs> um, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that, because I feel like that has something to do with kind of the everyday people um, sort of theme that you brought up earlier? Uh, yeah, interstitial is just a team word for in-between. Okay, so when we think of justice, for instance, we, we need to think broad and narrow. We, we think that, for instance, and again, I'm using Singapore as an example because it's a context I know best. So you'd say Singapore is a just society because the laws are clear and enforced without favoritism. So right now, everybody has to wear a mask when you're outside the house. Either you're rich, you're the prime minister, you are a road sweeper, everybody has to wear a mask outside your house. And, and so in many ways, Singapore is a just society. So broadly, yes. But when we look at the in-between spaces, we, we need to ask questions. So during this pandemic, migrant workers have not been allowed to go out on their days off. They have to stay in their dorm rooms, even on Sundays when they're not at work. So, so this doesn't seem to be fair because all of us who are not migrant workers, we can at least go downstairs, even during the circuit breaker, we could go downstairs for a walk. But migrant workers could not even do that. Um, so I think we need to ask these questions. Singapore is just yes, but when we look at certain segments or parts, is there justice there as well? Yeah, that, that's, that's true. Thank you for bringing that um, attention. I, I think in many ways, it, it really is a, is a biblical model. When you think about, I think, where Jesus went, right, in his travels, 
a lot of times they were among the interstitial places, right? You talk about Samaria, um, you talk about Gerasene where you went, um, all of these are interstitial places. And I think that if we look at it historically, um, churches work best from the margins when they, and where churches thrive are in the interstitial places. You think about the history of Singapore and how the churches really grew. There were missionary churches. So we have really, really big churches that have been around for 150 years. But if you look at um, many of the of the churches now in Singapore and actually throughout um, Southeast Asia, you find them growing in the interstitial places. It's where justice is being carried out, where mercy is being carried out. When people recognize that there's something that is different um, in Christianity and what Christians are doing, then that is how the churches grow. And I think that when we live in a world of uh, celebrities and, and mega churches and so forth, I think Southeast Asia, and it's not to say that Southeast Asia doesn't have mega churches, there are, but when we look at Southeast Asia and we see where the churches are genuinely growing and, and propagating, you actually find them in the interstitial spaces. And I think that in, say, North America or, or Europe or so forth, this is something that I think the rest of the world uh, needs to be reminded of, is where is the church most effective? Yeah, and, and that would affect, uh, also, it's also a question of power. And, and I think for Singaporeans, again, we, we want to be in power, big means power. We want to, we think that we want to be in the centers of power. But as Sam said, it's it's not. I, I think growth, uh, the kingdom of God grows, not necessarily when we're closest to seats of power or, or notions of power or where we think that there is power, but actually where there isn't power in the margins. And, and there's something that it, that we need to be mindful of. So again, back to the little people who who live out their lives the best they can. You know, the uncles and aunties who just try to be disciples of Jesus Christ where they are, and and that's where growth happens. And that's good. Amen. Well. Really encouraging to hear that as you both are sharing. or just thinking of even just our Christ. You know, Jesus, our model. Um, he, in a sense, he came um, to us as a helpless child um and and he also lived in the margins in in the 30 some odd years that he was on earth um in our midst and so i think it it is good for us especially um i mean we do live in a really prosperous city singapore that is and and a lot of times um it is good to have those reminders of just the the humble beginning of our christian faith thank you to both of you for that yeah, so like, um, you know, I hear you know, this whole relationship between church and society, right? How are we supposed to, uh, you know, be doing God's mission, right? In the places around us. And, you know, if we are going to be focused on one direction, which is gathering around centers of power. In a way, we see still, right, that actually the church thrives most, um, you know, in whatever way, right? In 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 the smallest, in the least of, of, of these spaces. Is this the trajectory that you see the church going though? Like, is it becoming more split? Are we coming towards the middle, uh, especially in Asia? Um, you know, what kind of research still perhaps needs to be done to serve, um, yeah, you know, this this relationship between church and society? I think that there are, there are still lots of issues that need to be discussed. So again, from the book, somebody has written a chapter on ancestor veneration. 
which as, as I mentioned, is an issue for those of us who come from a you know, Confucian background. And there is going to be pushback because this is one area where, you know, for so many reasons, you know, we, we think that we cannot, um, we cannot worship our ancestors and we're trying to find words and language to, to pay respect to our ancestors. Um, and, and that's going to be a very different way of thinking. So, so I think, yeah, what, where, where we're trying to go is that we're tossing some things out and then letting, um, and hoping that it will catch fire and, and or maybe a different metaphor, where it, whether it can, it can grow out of what we toss out. And there might be some areas that, that don't, but I think if this book and, and the ideas therein encourage people to, to push out, to try and to, to do different things, that would be, that would be good. That would, that would be helpful at, to, to push the, the borders out and into other areas. Sam, what do you think? Yeah, um, I, I would, I think, uh, agree with, with Kim in, in this particular perspective is that, again, Southeast Asia is, is the more that I, I learn about it, I realize it actually has so many different lessons to uh, offer to the rest of the world. One of the things that um, uh, what I would say is like growing up in the U.S., uh, just to give you an example, is, is the fact that um, when we think about uh, Christian and, and Muslim relations, right, um, oftentimes it, it's defined by the crusade. And it, there really is uh, animosity or perceived animosity in certain parts of what I say the Western world. But coming here to Singapore, I realized that the Muslims and Christians work together uh, I actually talked to uh, one of my students who basically shared is that they have Muslim neighbors and so forth. And they shared is like if a Muslim had a choice between a Muslim businessman or, or a Christian businessman, the Muslim would choose a Christian businessman. Right. So the perception is very different. And the reason why is because in Southeast Asia, you have to work together. There's no way to say, well, I want to be in my neighborhood and you be in your neighborhood. Uh, which is what we see uh, in the United States uh, currently with, uh, um, you know, ra the racial issues and so forth. It doesn't mean that there aren't racial issues in Southeast Asia, but how they work it out, um, because uh, they're in close proximity, they work it out in a very different way. And I think that as uh, trying to understand missions in Southeast Asia, you have to come to the ground. It, it, you cannot just, you know, when I think about ancestor veneration and how it has been discussed, you have to understand uh, Matteo Ricci had one idea and he said, it's not a big issue, but it was the Pope that ended up saying, well, ancestor veneration is considered idol worship and so forth. And they, they axed it. So it's important for us to understand that there is a local context and it's not defined by a particular framework that is external, but we have to understand um, the local context and then allow the local church to be able to deal with some of those issues. So I think that those are some things that, that um, I think the book helps us understand is that, um, again, it, it's an issue of diversity. Um, God works in different ways. Christianity can be expressed in so many different ways and yet still be orthodox, right? So um, that, I think, is something that I think Southeast Asian churches 
can bring to the larger global church. Thank you for that, Sam. I, I and Kim, I, I think both what you've said really um, are just so crucial in today's globalized world. I mean, it's not just the world is globalized in terms of the the way people and money flows, but the way that um, ideas um, and so. It, even as Christians who live in a globalized world, how do um, Christian experiences from one place, Southeast Asia, how can that help Christians who live in another place? Um, and and I, th- I think how much more we need to have this kind of cross-boundary, mm-hmm. transnational kind of dialogue among Christians. And so maybe um, I can just ask you one last question about your choice of language for publication. I mean, I, I was you know, talking mm-hmm. to another friend and about some some of these issues of, of um, language of um, publication, because in Asia, I mean, there are many other languages besides English. So, so choosing to publish in English, um, what do you think are some of the advantages and the disadvantages of that? We both speak English. Yes, and and Langham, who is the publisher, publishes in English. <laughs> we were, I think, we, in many ways, we we didn't really have a choice. Um, this is something that that I think is churches and and um, I think uh, academic theological education institutions will have to deal with in the future is that um, right now uh, the lingua franca uh, just like first century was Greek it's English at the at a particular moment right um, now again I would say this is within Southeast Asia um, so um, English is the current um, language uh, that is, is common that that can be used like Koine Greek was. Right? I, I don't think that Chinese would would be able to uh, have that large of an audience. The second thing is that when we think about theological education in a global context, it generally tends to be English. I would just say is the contextual issue is that it, it is in English. But our hope is that as the churches continue to grow throughout Southeast Asia. Uh, there will be uh, tra- uh, translations and and other things. Uh, one of the things my hope uh, at Singapore Bible College is is eventually um, we will have enough uh, scholars in different languages that if we offer a PhD, um, it can be written in uh, in Thai, in Vietnamese, all of these things because this is something that is necessary for the local churches. They need to have their own body of, of the, uh, theological work, of missiological work. But I don't think we are at a point where uh, we're able to do so. But it is something that future uh, institutions of theological education do need to deal with. Let me add to that, and that is that some of the contributors in the book, English is not their first language. It could be their second or even third language. And we've tried to keep their style as long as it's understandable, in, in English, because we're not expecting, uh, I mean, we want that local flavor to be there and, and to appreciate the, the, the local flavor. And so it may, it may seem a little bit clumsy for those who are, for whom English is the first language, but we want the, those sort of local expressions to come out in English because, yeah, that's, that's how it is. And yeah, may this book be an impetus that others will, will say, yeah, there are, we can do this. And we can do this in our own language. So did you write yours in Singlish? <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not academically acceptable. <laughs> Just kidding. 
Yeah, I think it's really encouraging, uh, you know, to hear from both of you. Um, and I think as someone from also this part of the world, right, has gone to the US to study, it's really very eye-opening and encouraging, I feel, to also hear voices uh, from our part of the world because there are just so few of us actually to, if you really want to think about the ratio of, you know, us to the rest of the world, right? And, you know, to know that, we are not alone in, in this endeavor. It's, it's really very encouraging and heartening. So uh, yeah, I, I would really hope that this book will come out 2022. It's probably 200 plus years in the making, so to speak. And yeah, it's, it's so good to see that it's going to be on paper now. Jackie, do you have any anything else you'd like to uh, ask or add? No, I just want to say thank you to both Kim and Sam for sharing with us um, so much about your book as well as all the thoughts that you put into um, behind the scene to, to, for this project. And I feel like I learned a lot. Um, so yeah, kudos to you guys for this book project and really look forward to its coming out in print and maybe future translations of this book. Thank you for having us. Yep. Thank you. I'll play in one more plug since uh, this is uh, one of the initial podcasts. Um, I do know that uh, Andrew Spurgeon and ATA, um, this is the first volume of a mission series that is, is going to be launched. And I think that um, there are so many issues that um, need to be addressed. And uh, if you are ever interested, in, I, I'm pulling it in for ATA uh, publications is that if you're interested in a particular topic or um, you have a dissertation that you feel should be published, I would consider um, uh, reaching out to um, ATA publications, uh, um, uh, Steve Pardue and also Andrew Spurgeon, both of them are heading it up and uh, just letting them know and uh, who knows, maybe you will be on a future podcast one day to introduce your book. Right, that's great. Yeah, I really look forward to more publications, uh, you know, through this book and even, you know, in this podcast, right, who, whoever is, is listening to it. And we hope that you will also be encouraged uh, in your church, in your institution, in, in a globalizing world to reconsider what it means to disciple Christians and, and share the good news of Christ, you know, including things of, you know, that we are called to do, like right? justice, love, kindness, and walk humbly before God. Uh, so thank you once again, Kim and Sam, for putting in the work uh, to produce this book and for being on our podcast. Uh, and to our listeners, for more of such conversations, please look out for our other episodes of our podcast and we'll continue to highlight voices in Asia, um, hopefully in a thoughtful and constructive way and to talk more about how God's hand has been present in, in all parts of the world. So thank you for tuning in. This has been Mosaic, a podcast by Singapore Bible College. Special thanks to Hilary Lim and Micah Singapore for giving us permission to use their music for our show. We would love to hear any feedback, suggestions, or comments that you might have, especially for future episodes. So feel free to contact us through our website at sbc.edu.sg. You can check out the website to discover more about our degree programs, events, and publications. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating, or tell a friend. Thanks for listening.